implementing church law, a theological specialty. At the outset, I'd like to thank our president, John Fulmer, for his gracious and kind words, and the governors of the society for granting me the privilege of being associated with the caliber of candidates who have received the role of law award in the past. I shall try to live up to the awards implications in my future work as a canon lawyer. I'd also like to express my sincere gratitude to those members of the Canon Law Society of America who first invited me to join the society, those who helped me to understand how to integrate my reading of the law into ministry, and to all those who patiently listened to me ramble on and on at various and sundry talks and workshops. They tell me that there are still a few people at Hartford waiting for the conclusion of my 1982 keynote address. The mandate to ramble unfettered once more is truly remarkable, though ambivalent, a perquisite of this award. It is as though I have been afforded the unique opportunity to offer a rebuttal to my own eulogy. The stone has been rolled across the entrance, but before the lights go out, I get to speak my piece. Tonight's ambience, of course, leaves something to be desired. I I have the same feeling that I experienced many years ago when my piano teacher, Mrs. Hertha Gordon, repaid her students for their mischievous ways throughout the year by arranging an annual piano recital in the spring. I am duly introduced. The polite applause dies down. I sit at the piano, which is strange to me since it is a rented hall piano. My fingers are clammy and therefore slippery on the keys and I launch intrepidly into Liszt's Second Hungarian Rhapsody, all 16 pages of it. What would have been more devastating then would have been to realize, as I now know, that no one really wanted to be there. I certainly didn't, Mrs. Gordon didn't, and the audience containing grandparents and parents, reluctant brothers and sisters, those aunts and uncles who could not escape the event, and the similar coterie of all the other students who were about to play that day didn't. They all wanted to be somewhere else, maybe watching a Mets Astro game, but their loyalty and love overcame good reason and they stayed. You'll be happy to know that tonight, John Fulmer, who actually does look a little like Mrs. Gordon, but with a juridical demeanor, has sternly instructed me to perform only the scherzo of Liszt's work and that prestissimo. The remainder will be found in the entirety in the proceedings of the convention. Like a recital audience, your continued presence here, your loyalty and your love make you very special to me. In fact, I want to talk about how special you are and the kind of problems that is causing you as an implementer of the church's law. We have all become more and more special and specialized in what we do. It is the inevitable function of the increasing size of the world, of the church, of knowledge itself. Things are so much more complicated today, and it takes more and more time and people to sort them out. The number of Catholics approaches the one billion mark. Even our special society's roles stand at 2,000. We're part of a very large people of God. The problems created by bigness will not disappear. They can only grow and intensify. 
Specialization is nothing new, nor is it strange to us. It has been occurring for centuries and at a blistering pace in our own time. Do you remember walking into your director's room and proposing that you write your doctoral dissertation on the indissolubility of marriage? The professor looked at you with a mixture of incredulity, mirth, and scorn. You ended up writing on the influence of Desiderius on the Decaugis of Anselmo Luca's Collexio of 1083 and the relationship of his thought to that of his uncle, Pope Alexander II. That is specialization. The same phenomenon is found in the business world, where workers are so specialized that no one else is legally permitted to do their specific task. And invariably, they must be retrained periodically for other jobs. Their expertise in various areas, once contemporaneous, is now successive. Companies themselves specialize, and so conglomerates spring up simply to organize them. Teachers in school are learned in only one field or subject. The bureaucracy of civil government multiplies apace. Have you ever noticed, by the way, that one of the few ties between all specialized agencies and departments of government is your social security number? I have purposely tried to forget that impersonal number, but always in vain. It keeps coming back to me, even clearer than Canon 1095. I wonder sometimes whether this tiny source of unity in a morass of societal fragmentation has its own life. When I am gone, will they gratefully retire my social security number? Like the jersey of a famous athlete, late at night when the users are gone, to the governmental and business computers revel in these numbers, starting up their data banks to compare notes and reminisce about the great numbers of the past. Well, the church is not immune from the multiplication of specialties. Parish and diocesan staffs and ministries have expanded in many different ways. And even parishes themselves have taken on specialized characteristics. Pastoral care today could hardly be called homogeneous or gen generalist. I know that in your own life, you share with me the frustration of not having enough time simply to read what should be read in your own field, no less outside your field. It is nearly impossible to be a true generalist. We are some somehow dwarfed by the challenge. Each of us is able to know only so much to be expert in only this or that area, to master simply a portion of the church's wisdom. And yet, we're asked to implement so much more. We are more and more specialists called upon to carry out a generalist's functions or duties. Unfortunately, we do not live at the turn of the century when life was simpler, nor are we endowed with the much vaunted powers of that famous character, Sherlock Holmes, who seemed to know everything. In the red-headed league, Dr. Watson, in imitation of his famous companion, earnestly tries to read the indications which might be presented by the dress or appearance of the portly client who has appeared at Holmes's residence. Nonetheless, he advises us, quote, look as I would, there was nothing remarkable about the man save his blazing red head 
and the expression of extreme chagrin and discontent upon his features. Sherlock Holmes's quick eye took in my occupation and he shook his head with a smile as he noticed my questioning glances. Beyond the obvious facts that he has at some time done manual labor, that he takes snuff, that he is a Freemason, that he has been in China, and that he has done a considerable amount of writing lately, I could deduce nothing else. After explaining the erudite knowledge and observations that permitted him to make his deductions, Holmes is disconcerted to hear his client explain, well, I never, I thought at first you had done something clever, but I see that there was nothing to it after all. I begin to think, Watson says Holmes, that I made a mistake in explaining. Omne ignotum pro magnifico, you know, and my poor little reputation, such as it is, will suffer shipwreck if I can be so candid. Holmes is the consummate generalist. Specialization accomplishes a great deal and is a source of much progress, but it is not always advantageous to academia, to society, to the church, or to us personally. For one thing, the specialist, unlike Holmes, often develops into someone who knows more and more about less and less. Communication with others becomes more difficult since there is less in common to begin with, and in the end, one is less able to learn from others. Those of you who have done any serious research know what I'm talking about. Your commitment of time and labor permits you to plumb the depths of a particular issue, perhaps more profoundly than anyone else ever has done. But at the same instant, you poignantly realize how little you know about everything else whose depths you have not plumbed and are not likely ever to comprehend. This state of affairs can lead to a sense of isolation, powerlessness, and loss of commonality with others. One of the reasons for this missing commonality is the absence of a guiding vision or horizon to clarify the big picture and keep all the specialties in sync with each other. Without such a vision, true communication is made even more difficult. This is especially important for canon lawyers, since those who seek to implement the law are precisely striving to communicate the church's vision of itself by translating it into the commonality of a shared Christian life. Specialization is not limited to the more obvious types of field and subject specialization. Obviously, these specializations are necessary since no one can be learned in every academic discipline and area of church life and law. But one must also take into account the functional specializations caused by the very structure of our human consciousness. This point has been explicated again and again by Father Bernard Lonergan. He contends that our process of learning and communicating consists of eight functional specialties, even though we may be concentrating on only one of the specialties on any given occasion. Lonergan identifies the specialties as exercises of our way of knowing, experiencing, understanding, judging, deciding. When we study the past, the tradition, the wisdom that has been revealed to us by God and handed down faithfully through the ages, 
In our case, when we study the origin and development of the laws we seek to implement, we must go through four stages. Research, which enables us to experience the proper data. Interpretation, which seeks to understand what is meant by the data. History, which connects the movements of thought and the events of the past in a reasonable manner. And dialectic, which compares and criticizes the contradictions and differences generated in history in order to decide on a comprehensive viewpoint. Our communication to others of what we learn involves the same four operations, but in reverse order. Foundations, which presents the horizons within which the meaning of doctrines for today's world can be properly apprehended. Doctrines, which set forth judgments of fact and judgments of value. Systematics, which attempts to work out appropriate systems of conceptualization to remove inconsistencies and make communication with others possible. And communications, which seeks to implement all that has been produced by the other seven specialties. In this analysis, the implementation of laws is a form of theological communication. That is, the application of a doctrinal system faithful to the revelation of Christ, insofar as this revelation has been understood systematically in history. You and I must take into account all seven functional specialties when we attempt to carry out the eighth specialty. We expect to implement the law authentically, that is, in accord with the structure of human consciousness, or as others might say, objectively. Such a goal is enormous, and it requires a radical personal commitment to transcend oneself and to place oneself at the mercy of the true and the good. If without such a commitment, persons, or worse, a community of persons, refuse to approach thought, meaning, and life as self-transcendent beings, the opposite of progress occurs. Lonergan blames the decline of many communities on what he calls the flight from understanding. This is what he wrote. The flight from understanding blocks the insights that concrete situations demand. There follow unintelligent policies and inept courses of action. The situation deteriorates to demand still further insights. And as they are blocked, policies become more unintelligent and action more inept. What is worse, the deteriorating situation seems to provide the uncritical, biased mind with factual evidence, which the bias is claimed to be verified. So in ever-increasing measure, intelligence comes to be regarded as irrelevant to practical living. Human activity settles down to a decadent routine, and initiative becomes the privilege of violence. Tribunal officials might do well to examine Lonergan's description as one way of analyzing the process and effect of a person's behavioral disorder, which leads to the decline of the community and ultimately of civilization, and in the church's case, of faith. This situation is operative today in the world, in our own country, in our church, in ourselves. Some prefer to deny it, closing their eyes to the reality of specialization, fragmentation, and plurality. They implement the law as if there is no complexity, 
neither in thought nor in life. Some leave to others the task of solving such a monumental challenge. They withdraw into doing their own thing, thereby compounding the problem. They too fail to transcend themselves. Both approaches exacerbate the decline. Building bridges of communication, sharing information and insights, fostering unity, promoting rights and the fulfillment of one's duties. These are obviously ways of counteracting the flight from understanding and the result of decline. But none of these remedies is possible without radical humility. That is, an acceptance of complete dependence on God and for us Christians on his son Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. And selfless charity, that is, one's gift of self to God and to others. In other words, self-transcendence. While such self-transcending commitment and must pervade every decision of our lives, tonight we might do well to narrow our scope only to only one element, among many, of the solution to decline, namely the implementation of the church's law. For law, when properly implemented, can indeed be a useful tool to counteract the negative effects of specialization and isolation. After all, it is a source of commonality and therefore of unity. Lonergan explains, he says, a common field of experience makes for a potential community. And without that common field, people get out of touch. Common and complementary ways of understanding make for a community of mind. Without it, there are misunderstanding, suspicion, distrust, mutual incomprehension. Common judgments constitute a consensus. And without it, an easy tolerance gives way to amazement, scorn, ridicule, division. Common commitments, finally, are the stuff of fidelity to one another, of loyalty to the group, of faith in a divine providence and in the destiny of man. And without such commitments, community has lost its heart, and becomes just an aggregate. We should neither overestimate nor underestimate the power of the law to achieve many of these stated goals. John Paul II reminded us when he promulgated the code. This is what he wrote. The code is in no way intended as a substitute for faith, grace, charisms, and especially charity in the life of the church and of the faithful. On the contrary, its purpose is rather to create such an order in the ecclesial society that while assigning the primacy to love, grace, and charisms, it at the same time renders their organic development easier in the life of both the ecclesial society and individual persons who belong to it. The preface to the Latin edition of the code spelled out in greater detail how this organic unity is to be achieved through the observance of the law. This is what it says. The law can no longer be unknown. Pastors have at their disposal secure norms by which they may correctly direct the exercise of the sacred ministry. To each person is given a source of knowing his or her own proper rights and duties. Arbitrariness in acting can be precluded. Abuses which perhaps have crept into ecclesiastical discipline because of a lack of legislation, can be more easily rooted out and prevented. Finally, 
all the works, institutes, and initiatives of the apostolate may progress expeditiously and may be promoted since a healthy juridic organization is quite necessary for the ecclesiastical community to live, grow, and flourish." End quote. In other words, law is not merely the expression of the church's vision of itself at this point in history. It is a source of continuing identity and unity when properly implemented. Consequently, canon lawyers are in a unique position to ensure the fulfillment of the law's primary purpose and thereby to offer some relief to the problems that are arising from specialization, isolation, and lack of commonality. While each of us accomplishes this task in a specific area, perhaps in the Ministry of Education or in tribunal work or as administrators in a diocese or religious community, respect for the entire process of learning and communicating is essential in every case if the law is to be implemented properly. Teamwork is a necessity. Professors at the university level and seminaries and other educational institutions are indispensable in order to maintain the quality of research and learning needed to form the basis for action. They are needed to train personnel for such action. They are called on to communicate with others in various fields to clarify the commonality that should be our abiding vision. Consider the task of the judge in a marriage case. An annulment case is a communication of the church's faith, its teaching, its system relating to marriage and married life, to the concrete situation of two particular individuals. It cannot be viewed as routine or automatic. It cannot be divorced from the entire process of human knowing, the knowing that has developed jurisprudence, the knowing that has illuminated the facts of the case. Every day, administrators are developing policies and implementing them precisely in order to concretize and apply the law. They cannot do so authentically without a vision of the past and a balanced view of the far-reaching effects of such actions. In short, all of us, as specialized as we might seem, are asked to be generalists in the sense of incorporating into our consciousness the entire process leading to the implementation of the law. While we should not over-dramatize the unitive effect of law, it would be a mistake to think that the common and consistent implementation of law has little effect on the sense of identity and commonality crucial to the people of God. For Americans in particular, religious commonality is an especially important balance to rampant individualism. Listen to the comments of the authors of Habits of the Heart about the role of religion as a community of memory. This is what's written. People growing up in communities of memory not only hear the stories that tell how the community came to be, what its hopes and fears are, and how its ideals are exemplified in outstanding men and women. They also participate in the practices, ritual, aesthetic, ethical, that define the community as a way of life. We call these practices of commitment, for they define the patterns of loyalty and obligations that keep the community alive. And if the language of this self-reliant individual is the first language of American moral life, the languages of tradition and commitment 
and communities of memory are second languages that most Americans know as well and which they use when the language of the radically separate self does not seem adequate. Our church's memory is 2,000 years old and has been consistent because of its rootedness in the person of Christ, the measure, the original canon, against whose truth all else pales. Our law seeks to implement the doctrines flowing from the person of Christ by mediating them to the people and circumstances of the 20th century. Our law is neither arbitrary nor groundless. It has foundations that are discernible and discoverable over and over again, and applicable afresh to every new situation. I am not suggesting that the church's law does not need improvement, but while we improve it, we must also bring everyone to obey it properly. Otherwise, the law will never contribute to its noble goal of ecclesial unity. How do we do this? By refusing to divorce implementation from meaning and history. We must be about our business of implementing the law wisely and equitably, and seeing that it is similarly implemented by others, especially those in authority and positions of pastoral leadership. But we cannot do so without personal awareness of and fidelity to all of the functional specialties that go into the development of law. The system of law must be understood in its entirety and the contradictions and inconsistencies clarified and resolved. This system must be based on authentic church teaching as expressed by the magisterium and authentically elaborated by theologians. Such doctrines reflect a common horizon that is in accord with the conversion of faith that grounds our deepest commonality. And this vision must be true to its historical foundations, to the authentic sources of law, properly understood in their context of the complete canonical tradition, particularly the teaching of Vatican II, and positioned in the history of the church and of canon law. Now, that I have utterly confused you with the myriad responsibilities that you always knew you had or were afraid to admit. Perhaps I can concretize these thoughts better by naming some of the personal qualities that we need to guide us in this exciting pursuit of meaning. True to this analysis of human consciousness, Lonergan matches the four operations of knowing with four personal precepts. Be attentive, be intelligent, be reasonable, be responsible. If you can learn nothing without data, you must constantly be attentive to the presence or absence of such data. If data alone are meaningless, you must apply your intelligence to pull out the kernel of understanding contained in the data. If interpretation raises a number of meanings, you must be able to relate them to each other and make sense out of them in some reasonable fashion. And if you make sense out of them, you must still make some decisions on how to proceed with discretion, thus arriving at a comprehensive viewpoint. These four precepts are a good start. What qualities do they require in a canon lawyer as the implementer of law? Here is my exemplative list. No lawyer in his right mind ever gives you a taxative list. 
except perhaps of the Trinity. And he usually leaves that one to the dogmatic theologians. So here's my exemplative list. Theological. Laws are not ends. They are means to the end of concretizing theological systems. Historical. You cannot communicate solely with the learned of today. You must carry on a conversation with the learned of the past. Academic. Practicality alone is insufficient. It works only in primitive cultures where no differentiation of thought occurs. To eschew academic pursuits, no matter how action-oriented your ministry, is to doom yourself to repetition and eventual irrelevance. Common sense on its own is quickly infiltrated by common nonsense. Critical. Conflicting ideas and laws must be compared and criticized fully and intelligently. This arena requires one to be a good loser and a gracious winner. The church's vision of itself and the laws that implement it are not black and white. There are broad areas of discretion and such gray zones require give and take. Farsighted. The critical mind judges how to implement laws not merely based on the present case and the pre pre practice of the past, but in terms of the far-reaching effects of such decisions in the future. Modern. Implementation is impossible without sensitivity to today's needs and problems. This does not mean, however, that we should become neo-modernists whose source of vision is simply ephemeral and ultimately not from God. Literate. The implementation of law is a form of communication. It requires all the skills of the effective communicator. Balanced. Law is not the be-all and end-all of the church. It is one source of organization and unity, and, and not the only source, and not even the most important source. Humble. Self-transcendence implies total denial of self, an eventual sacrifice of self. Without it, nothing could be achieved. Willing to be persecuted for justice sake. Commitment to the course of self-transcendence in implementing the law will cause problems and controversy. Perseverance and strength are indispensable. Otherwise, one will give in to one or both of two familiar temptations, to be overly restrictive and demanding, or to fail to require compliance when the law demands it. Loving. The love of God is the force that will effect change for the better. Even when the task seems too great, we are only his instruments. When we act, we must act as sacraments of his efficacious grace, trying to ensure identity and unity. Generalist. Even though we are exercising a particular specialty, it is imperative to be aware of the specific emphasis of our activity and to incorporate all of the process of learning and applying that leads up to our decisions. In other words, be thorough. If you are authentically thorough when implementing law, you cannot help but be a student of the law, nor will you escape the role of educating others. If you try to dispense with either role, your application of the law will be faulty and eventually damaging to the church. An implementer is at the same time a student and teacher of the law 
being implemented and of the law in general. Consequently, things cannot be viewed simplistically. They must be viewed in a complicated fashion with all of the complex history and future ramifications, and yet with true clarity. If you look at things simplistically, what you think you see may not actually be what is there. Its meaning is available only to the one who looks at it thoroughly from every angle. Of course, Sherlock Holmes, the inveterate student, teacher, and the man of action, always knew this. In the Boscombe Valley Mystery, he says to, to Dr. Watson, circumstantial evidence is a very tricky thing, answered Holmes thoughtfully. It may seem to point very straight to one thing, but if you shift your own point of view a little, you may find it pointing in an equally uncompromising manner to something entirely different. I am afraid, said I, that the facts are so obvious that you will find little credit to be gained out of this case. There is nothing more deceptive than an obvious fact, he answered laughing. Besides, we may chance to hit upon some other obvious facts, which may have been by no means obvious to Mr. Lestrade. Thank you very much.